Mark, Mark 12, we'll beginning at verse 18. Mark 12, starting at 18 in just a few moments. When I was a young 20-something, I had an issue that I wanted to talk to Pastor Denny about. It was a Wednesday morning, which meant that he was getting ready for preschool chapel. He was taking out the flannel board pieces in the quiet sanctuary and probably enjoying a little peace. I came in. I probably barged in. I sat down and said, I want to talk to you. Do you have time? He kind of laughed and said yes. What was he going to say? He's the pastor, right? He's kind of a captive audience. And I found him exactly where I knew I would. I said, okay, here it is. I'm not very excited about heaven. It sounds boring and a little ludicrous. I'm not really certain I want to go there. (laughs) At this, he laughed out loud. Denny does that. Not to be rude, but if someone says something odd or off kilter, he doesn't hold back. He said, you know, Colleen, you can laugh or you can cry or you can get mad. You might as well laugh. So he said, okay, why do you think that? So I explained, well, everything seems perfect, which is a little hard to comprehend. I understand the Garden of Eden, but not sinless people. And forever, I mean, everything we know here ends. Nothing stays the same or lasts very long. I'm sure it's going to be beautiful, but come on, what the heck are we going to do? I think he probably laughed again. He said, Colleen, you're leaving out the best part. That heaven is the very presence of God. It's not about going to a place because we've had our sins forgiven. It is knowing God and seeing him. It is the best kind of going home. We'll be consumed by his glory and swept up in honoring him, the one that we have gotten to know here. He told me, think about times of worship or prayer where you have felt the very presence of the living God. He said, that is a glimpse of heaven. I thought that was a pretty good answer, and I realized how shallow I was. And in the intervening years, my view of eternity has grown. Thanks to interactions like this, studying scripture and other books, knowing God more, and simply getting tired of living here and longing, longing to be with the Lord. This topic of heaven comes up this week in the next form of harassment of Jesus in the temple. Now a small group has come to ask him about the resurrection with a far-fetched scenario of marriage. While it leans toward the ridiculous, their questions are valid. The question is a valid one, which Jesus answers. So hear the word of the Lord from Mark 12, 18 through 27. Some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no child, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first married, and when he died, left no children. And the second married the widow and died, leaving no children. And the third likewise. None of the seven left children. Last of all, the woman herself died. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? (laughs) For the seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Is not this the reason you are wrong, that you know neither the scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. 
And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the story about the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is God not of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. One of the commentators I read this week said, he should have said, you are dead wrong. Now, this is the first and only time we see the Sadducees mentioned by name in the book of Mark. They were an elite group of very influential priests who were quite wealthy. Although small in number, the high priest was often a Sadducee. They were specific in their Judaic beliefs, and they only accepted the first five books of the Bible known as the Pentateuch as the word of God. They did not believe in life after death or the spirit world. And because they rejected oral tradition and because they aligned themselves with the Roman government, they were not friends of the Pharisees. What we know about them come from, uh, comes from the Jewish historian Josephus, but also from their bitter enemies who wrote down details of all the conflicts that they had with them. So from them, we read that the Sadducees were rude, power-hungry, arrogant, and quick to argue with those who disagreed with them. They themselves did not uh, leave a written legacy, and they disappear after the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. It is thought that we have not seen them until now in the book of Mark because they have not had to bother with Jesus. Since he has cleared the temple, though, he has come into focus as someone who needed to be challenged. So here they're attempting to get Jesus to admit that they're correct in saying that the resurrection is not true and that it's wrong. With their story, they want him to concede the idea that it is absurd. Now, this is a fairly straightforward passage where we want to pay attention to the answer that Jesus gives to this group. Their question is a distraction for the real issue at hand, but Jesus addresses it. So in response to their story about the afterlife, Jesus tells the Sadducees both how and why they misunderstand a key aspect of God's promise to his people. You see, the resurrection is God's promise to his people. That there, this is not all there is, that we will rise and see him face to face. So Jesus explains how they are mistaken. They're wrong about one main thing. And then he gives them three reasons why they have come to that wrong conclusion. So first, let's talk about the how. The Sadducees come to him with a question about resurrection, which is framed about this story about the woman and her seven husbands that she ends up marrying. So they begin with Moses. In the law given to him by God, there was provision for what came to be known as leveret marriage, which comes from the Latin word levir, meaning brother-in-law. In Deuteronomy 25, it was stated that if an unmarried man... Uh, died without leaving children, that his brother had to take his sister-in-law as his wife. So an heir could be provided for the man who died. This ensures, of of course, that the family name and the property continue in a linear fashion for the descendants. This provision of Moses leads them to spin this yarn of how a situation here would be resolved in heaven. So tell us, Jesus, how is this going to get worked out? Whose wife is she going to be? Now, they don't really want a real discussion. They want to focus in on the flaw about the resurrection. 
But Jesus takes it seriously because he knows that there are people listening and he wants to hone in on what is true. He begins with the premise that the resurrection is a certainty. That is not up for discussion. That is not up for debate. And he tells them, you know, life is going to be different than you think it's going to be when people are raised from the dead. Because their story seems to imply that life is going to continue on here as it has been, except in a more perfected, expanded state. And Jesus says, no, there will be resurrection, but there will be no marriage in the next life. Jesus says, we're going to be more like angels whose primary relationship is with God himself. And I wonder if this isn't the main point. How in heaven our identity is going to be fully grounded in our all-glorious king, not in the relationships we had here. Now, I know that we find great comfort in knowing that those we love are in the presence of God after they die. That is part of the promise that we hold on to. And we know heaven is going to be a reunion when those that we have missed here, we're going to see them, those who trusted God. The saints from every age will join in a place that we can't even begin to imagine. Yet those who are married, who love being married, who are connected to their spouse, often speak as though that relationship will continue throughout eternity. But Jesus doesn't support that idea. We are formed by God. We are given breath, his breath for our life. We are forgiven. And then we go to live in his dwelling place at his invitation So our focus will be on him first and foremost. There was a Welsh Protestant preacher by the name of John Penry. He lived, as you see, in the 1500s. He wrote tracts denouncing abuses that he saw at the time in the church. And for his outspoken ways, he was imprisoned numerous times and finally put to death death for sedition. On the night before his execution, he left a note with a Bible for each of his four daughters, and he wrote a beautiful goodbye letter to his wife. In it, he calls her his beloved, and he thanks her for partaking in God's life with him because they have suffered for the gospel, for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And he says, I hope that you have known that you have rested with me in the undoubted hope of the glory that shall be revealed. He encourages her to continue in the faith. And then this is how he signs it. In great haste, with many tears, and yet in great spiritual comfort of my soul, your husband for a season, and your beloved brother forevermore. Ah, I was so taken with that when I read it this week. Your husband for a season and your beloved brother forevermore. You see, God's dwelling place on high is not a place about us or about having a more perfected version of life we have here. It is centered on the worship of the king. We'll finally be able to see his shining glory face to face that no one has been able to completely do. And the most important aspect of our resurrected life will be him. Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is his bride. 
Next, Jesus gives three reasons why they have come up with this wrong idea of resurrection in the first place. I think they're important and pertinent for our time, so I want to go over them. First, Jesus says they're wrong because they don't know the scripture. You see, the Sadducees didn't ex- uh, accept most of the scriptures that Jesus had available to him at the time. The first five books are foundational, but you lose the history, the prophetic words, the wisdom, the scriptures that point to Messiah. It reminds us of how Thomas Jefferson cut out the offending parts of the Bible that he didn't like. In 1804, he began to cut meticulously out only the pieces that he believed in and then put them on a a different piece of paper and made his own book called The Philosophy of Jesus of Nazareth. And 16 years later, he did a second version. He kept out all of Jesus's words, some of his life, but got rid, I mean, I'm sorry, he kept Jesus's words in some of his life, but he got rid of any suggestion of Jesus being God, any miracles, and of course, the resurrection. Now, because the Sadducees looked at only the first five books, they must have missed verses about people being raised from the dead, like this one from Isaiah. But your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. At the time of Jesus, the notion of resurrection was considered to be nonsense by philosophers and pagans. But the Jewish people believed in it. They knew that they would one day see God face to face, although it wasn't a complete formed thought like it is today because of the scripture that we just read and others like it the notion of living forever was accepted as truth except by the sadducees who have cut those things out of their bible so this has impact for us how often do we just focus in on the parts of scripture that we like not delving into the parts we find hard or the parts that we doubt All of scripture is God-breathed and inspired. And we have to wrestle with the difficult passages like Job and Revelation. That's why we encourage the spiritual discipline of personal study, of going to a small group. Because it is in those times of thinking about what God has said that we struggle with. It helps form who we are and our beliefs about him and the world. And if we don't, we might find a theology partially based on God's word and then whatever we think is our best idea of truth. Jesus says, secondly, they're wrong about the resurrection because they don't know the power of God. The one thing that the resurrection demonstrates is the absolute power of God over death for all time. When we pass from this life, it is not the end for us because death no longer bounds God Like I said, the Sadducees joined a long list of people who, in the ancient world, who believed that death was the end. Here are two gravestones from that time that archaeologists have found. I was not. I am not. I do not care. I did not exist. I was born. I existed. I do not exist so much for that. If anyone says anything different, he will be lying. I shall not exist. Greetings, if you are a just person. My child, guard yourself lest you trip. The tongue itself is not troubled need. Whenever it speaks, but whoever it errs, it contributes to many evils. We don't get to choose 
We don't get to choose what happens to us after we die. And people may say loudly, there's no God, there's no heaven, but that doesn't make it true. To deny the resurrection after death limits also God's power to bring transformation to us while we live. And so we need to think about how we live in resurrection power for our prayers, for how we're forgiven, for how God is guiding us, for discernment. Those who live for Christ have God's resurrection power all of the time. So we want to embrace the resurrection because it means God's ability to affect good today matters. And when we trust Christ, eternity starts today. Lastly, Jesus is telling them that they're wrong about the resurrection because they're wrong about their conception of God. He brilliantly uses their own scriptures to show them who God is and to give them a different picture. When Yahweh speaks to Moses, he uses present language about those who have passed on. He does not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is relational. He creates us to live forever. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, but God continued to be with them. Our friendship with God does not end with death. Listen to what the psalmist says. Yet I am always with you, says the psalmist. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is the God of the living, not the dead. And listen to what uh, Reverend John Bailey of the Church of Scotland says. If the individual can commune with God, then he must matter to God. And if he matters to God, he must share God's eternity. For if God really rules, he can't be conceived as scrapping what is precious in his sight. God created humanity, and he said, this is very good. And so we know he will do everything possible to keep that connection with those whom he loves. Some who were with Jesus that day had seen Lazarus raised from the dead. Not long after this interaction, they would see Jesus himself alive after he most definitely had died. And one of the ways we know that the resurrection is true is because we know that the risen Lord is with us right now. That he is here among us, speaking to us, assuring us, convicting us, loving us. We have experienced his very life and all that that entails in us. And we have seen his life in, the, in others that we know. He is as real as you and me. And when the disciples saw him three days after he died, he was transformed. He was not the same. He was whole. We can debate many ideas of the Christian faith. And we may struggle to understand all that it means and what it will be like. But the resurrection, Jesus says, is a certainty. Jesus affirms it here and then experiences it in his earthly body assuring us that we too will be raised when our time comes. So let us bow our heads now to the risen Lord in this moment, the one in whom we have put our hope now and for all time. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, 
you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.